Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Thursday, January 4th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, the special edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the Yemeni Armed Forces uh, which is remaining undeterred uh, by the threats uh, from the United States. There is a continuing response to the targeted assassination of a Hamas deputy leader yesterday in Lebanon. We'll have details on that as well. The U.S. admits to the killing of the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces leader. And Sierra Leone in West Africa has indicted the former president for treason. In the second and third hours, we listened to a panel of experts on events in Palestine um, put together uh, by Electronic Intifada. These and other uh, features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Abete Ma Sikini and the Les Redoubles. Let's listen uh, to uh, this contribution.
tu fais-tu de tout ce que je sais Laisse-moi profiter de ma jeunesse Le soleil brille pour tout le monde La lune brille pour tout le monde Salimo bali, amonita ka 
Qui ne se connaissent pas 
cohabitent ensemble dans l'auberge des Sept Arpents à Pantin, dans la région parisienne, pour un concours de chant. En direct de la Local TV, voici la plus grande explosion de l'année, Festival Abeti Masikini, Casting Future Star, Kabibi Je t'aime au-delà de toutes mes limites Peu m'importe And then a hero comes along Pignagna balale Pignagna balalo Balalo You still can touch my heart Il y a un concours de beauté Moi j'ai une question pertinente En vous présentant au concours ici euh, Êtes-vous à mesure d'assumer les responsabilités d'une lauréate dans le cadre du festival à Betty Massikini, deuxième édition et de la première télé-réalité de la diaspora noire en France, qui sera la gagnante du concours de chant Qui sera la gagnante du concours de beauté Vous n'êtes pas jolie, mais du moins les critères ne correspondent pas à nos attendements. D'accord. Je vous remercie pour la compréhension. Chloé Kivinda. Merci c'est Malvin, c'est ça. Vous avez 18 ans. L'ambiance était électrique à l'auberge. Je vous trouve assez lourde. Quel était le comportement des filles entre elles Vous le saurez en achetant le DVD du Festival à Betty Massikini très prochainement dans les bacs et en visitant le site aquisonw.com ou à la Local TV sur la Freebox Canal 156.
And that was the voice of the legendary Abete Masakini uh, from the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, January 4th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Now we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And these are some of the headlines uh, in uh, today's Pan-African Newswire. Despite U.S. threats, the Yemeni armed forces continue their operations, detonating an unmanned naval vessel in the Red Sea. The British newspaper Financial Times announced that the Yemeni armed forces detonated an unmanned naval vessel in the Red Sea on Thursday in an incident uh, described as the first of its kind involving the use of unmanned naval vessels in their operations in the Red Sea. The most recent operation occurred just one day after 12 countries, including the United States, Britain, and Japan, issued a joint statement warning the Yemeni armed forces of unspecified consequences unless it ceases its attacks. On Wednesday, a U.S. official indicated that this warning could be considered a final notice. The newspaper highlighted that despite the absence of damage to any ship's in the explosion, 
of the unmanned boat. This scenario poses a challenge to the United States. This is a noteworthy. This is noteworthy in light of the recent warnings. The Yemeni armed forces announced on Sunday the martyrdom of a number of its naval forces, who were killed by U.S. forces while carrying out their duty in preventing Israeli and Israeli-bound ships from crossing the Red Sea. And in other news taking place, anxiety and tension are prevalent among the Israeli settlers in the north of occupied Palestine, fearing the response to the assassination of martyr Saleh al-Aruri. According to the Israeli channel Khan, uh, Israeli settlers in northern occupied Palestine indicated that they are on high alert after settlement mayors told residents not to return to their homes in the coming days. The northern Israeli settlement of Kiryat Shmona uh, has long been aware of the threat of the rocket launches uh, from Lebanon. However, in recent months, the continuous threat to it has led to the evacuation of most of its settlers. And Yiriath Aronov report uh, revealed uh, just this last past Wednesday. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Pentagon spokesperson Pat Ryder confirmed a U.S. strike in Iraq targeted Mustaq Jawad Qasim al-Jawari, leader of the Arakat al-Nujabi, for his involvement in attacks on U.S. occupation troops in the region. Pentagon spokesperson Pat Ryder confirmed uh, on Thursday that a U.S. strike in Iraq targeted Hajj Mustaq Talib al-Sadi Abu Taqwa the assistant commander of the Baghdad Ring Operations and Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces, the PMF, due to his involvement in operations targeting the U.S. occupation bases in the region. Quote, I can confirm that on January 4th, approximately 12 p.m. Iraq time, U.S. forces took necessary and proportionate action against Mustaq Jawad Qasim al-Jawari, a.k.a. Abu Taqwa, uh, who is a Harakat el-Nujabi leader. Uh, Abu Taqwa was actively involved in planning and carrying out attacks against American personnel, writers said, during a press briefing. Earlier in the day, al-Mahadin, a correspondent in Iraq, reported that Hajj Mustaq Talib el-Sadi uh, was martyred as a result of a U.S. airstrike that targeted the headquarters of the PMF in eastern Baghdad. The aggression coincided with preparations for the anniversary celebrations of the Iraqi military. During the attack, a drone launched four rockets from a drone, three of which were launched uh, simultaneously, while the fourth struck al-Saidi's car. And finally... The Sierra Leone government announced uh, yesterday that former President Ernest Bayakarama has been charged with treason and other offenses for his alleged role in a coup attempt. The Ministry of Information and Civic Education said in a public notice that the former president faces four offenses, including treason, misprison of treason, and two counts of harboring. Karoma, who served as Sierra Leone's president between 2007 and 2018 has legal representation, the ministry added. It assured the public of continuous updates on the proceedings. On November 26 of 2023, armed individuals attacked military barracks, a prison, and other locations in Freetown, the capital 
of the West African country of Sierra Leone, resulting in the deaths of more than 20 people in what the government later described as a failed coup attempt. With that, uh, we'll conclude our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that uh, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal special Worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. Just go to the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
The uh, black-led uh, British band, uh, Soul to Soul, doing that uh, classic track, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Thursday, January 4th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. The question of Palestine remains uh, on the headlines of world affairs and journalistic coverage of developments in Palestine, of course, are a point of contention. Yet uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program, we bring um, constant uh, information from alternative sources, including electronic intifada. Uh, let's listen to this report on day 89 of the siege upon Gaza. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, January 3rd. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to all of our viewers and listeners. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Winstanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 89 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. And it's also our first live stream of the new year. While Israel continued to carpet bomb Gaza, on Tuesday evening, Saleh al-Aruri, the deputy head of Hamas's Politburo, was killed in a targeted Israeli strike in a residential area of the southern suburbs of Beirut. Two leaders and three cadre members of the armed wing of Hamas, which was co-founded by al-Aruri, were also killed in what may be the most significant regional escalation since the resistance group's October 7th military operation writes our senior editor, Maureen Murphy. Mark Regev, the foreign media spokesperson for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, stumbled over his words during an interview with the U.S. broadcaster MSNBC, Maureen adds. Regev was apparently seeking to avoid Israel claiming responsibility while at the same time defending it as an attack on Hamas and not on Hezbollah or the Lebanese state. So I think it's obvious. Obviously, in Lebanon, there are many Hezbollah targets, but whoever did this strike was very surgical and went for a Hamas target because Israel is at war. Uh, 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 whoever did this uh, has, a, has a gripe with Hamas. Uh, 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 it's, once again, whoever did this, it's not an attack on the Lebanese state. It's not an attack on the Hezbollah terrorist organization. Whoever did this, it's an attack on Hamas. That's very clear. Lebanese political expert and scholar Amal Saad told the BBC yesterday that the strike signals, quote, an escalation in Israel's regional war. Might be. Well, it's very difficult to determine at this point how Hezbollah will respond. It will definitely retaliate, that's for sure, and it will definitely be a serious retaliation. This does signal uh, an escalation, uh, and that's because this is the first time that, you know, from October 7 till today that Israel has struck Beirut. It has 
its incursions, like until now, the deepest one was around 45 kilometers. Um, so this would be over 100 kilometers. It's the capital. It's an assassination. And, uh, you know, also se several civilians were killed because this was this attack took place in um, a civilian neighborhood. In fact, it's not a military area. Uh, and also we have to bear in mind that Nasrallah himself threatened back in August that Hezbollah would not tolerate any assassinations. And of course, this was before, you know, uh, the, the fighting began in Gaza. Um, he threatened that Hezbollah would strike in a major way or respond in a major way if Israel assassinated any leaders, be they Lebanese or Palestinian or, or Iranian inside Lebanon, that Lebanon would not accept that. Sorry, Hezbollah would not accept that Lebanon be used in that way. So I think any escalation that will happen will, first of all, Again, like Israel broke the rules of engagement, it completely violated them. Um, Hezbollah will do the same. Now, how will it do that? I think it will do that in a very carefully calibrated way so as to ensure that it falls short of all-out war. So I think it will be the kind of escalation whereby it can restore some balance of deterrence, some level of deterrence. But it will, I think it will remain at a sub-threshold level, meaning it will move things you know, from moderate intensity warfare to high, you know, not to high intensity, but some. Following the assassination of al-Aruri, Hamas reportedly told Egyptian and Qatari mediators that they are suspending any further negotiations with Israel. For more on what happened in Beirut yesterday, check out Maureen Murphy's latest post on the assassination of Saleh al-Aruri on electronicintifada.net. And we'll hear more about it later on in the show with John. In Gaza, the Israeli military conducted yet another massacre in the Jabalia refugee camp. The Palestinian Ministry of Health is reporting that more than 22,000 people have been killed and more than 57,000 injured since October 7th. An additional 7,000 people have also been reported missing or buried under the rubble, the World Health Organization stated. Bezalel Smotrich, Israel's finance minister, pushed ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from the Gaza Strip during a Sunday interview with Army Radio. Smotrich said, quote, we need to encourage immigration from there. If there were 100,000 to 200,000 Arabs in the Strip and not 2 million, the whole conversation about the day after the war would be completely different, he asserted. They want to leave. They have been living in a ghetto for 75 years and are in need. Saturday night, Smotrich told Channel 12 News, quote, I'm for completely changing the reality in Gaza, having a conversation about the settlements in the Gaza Strip. We'll need to rule there for a long time. If we want to be there militarily, we need to be there in a civilian fashion. He further claimed that, quote, Gazans are not innocent and encouraged what he misleadingly termed voluntary emigration. For more on the stated genocidal intentions of Israel's top lawmakers, read my colleague Michael Brown's latest post, Nothing is Voluntary About Fleeing Gaza and American Bombs, on electronicintifada.net. The World Food Program on Tuesday highlighted, quote, the, the threat of starvation and disease in heavily built-up areas where tens of thousands of people have fled intense bombing campaigns in the enclaves north and center. People often go the entire day and night without eating. Adults go hungry so children can eat, the agency said. 
Israel continued attacking the Palestine Red Crescent Society's headquarters at Al-Amal Hospital in the southern city of Khan Yunus. Israel targeted the hospital five times last week. On December 24th, an Israeli sniper drone targeted and killed a 13-year-old boy while he was playing with his cousins inside a room at the hospital facility. The next day, PCRS ambulance teams in Khan Yunus came under Israeli artillery shelling while recovering the bodies of several people. In two separate instances yesterday, Israeli bombardments killed five displaced persons, including a newborn baby, and injured three, including a volunteer first responder at the PCRS facility, according to the medical service. Human rights groups say they are alarmed at, quote, systematic Israeli theft occurring in Palestinian civilian homes in Gaza. Euro-Mediterranean human rights monitors stated that, quote, the Israeli army has unleashed its soldiers in the Gaza Strip not only to kill, but to engage in immoral activities such as property theft and looting during raids on Palestinian civilian homes. In a new report, the group says that there are a number of cases that, quote, show uh, participating in and witnessing the deliberate theft of the assets and money of Palestinian civilians, including laptop computers, gold, and large quantities of cash. Israel's army has been conducting ground military operations in the Gaza Strip since October. These operations, Euromed Monitor says, quote, have included raiding homes, storming residential areas, and conducting arbitrary arrest campaigns against civilians. According to testimonies gathered by Euromed Monitor, the Israeli army's crimes extend beyond arbitrary arbitrary detentions, enforced disappearances, and field executions. They also involve the intentional destruction of property, the theft of personal belongings, and the looting and burning of homes all part of a systematic strategy that is evidently based on collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Based on the testimonies it has been documenting, the Euromed Monitor team stated that its preliminary estimates suggest that the Israeli army may have looted valuable possessions worth tens of millions of dollars, in addition to stealing personal belongings from Palestinian civilians. Israel's soldiers themselves have published videos on social media platforms documenting their deliberate sabotage of the civilian homes in the Gaza Strip, Euromed Monitor pointed out, or their spraying of racist Zionist slogans on walls in addition to bragging about seizing Palestinians' money and valuable possessions. And finally, in the West Bank, Israeli forces surrounded the Tabet Hospital in Tulkarem, a city in the northern occupied West Bank, in yet another invasion on Tuesday. The occupying army declared the Nur Shams refugee camp a closed military zone. Also on Tuesday, Israeli forces killed four Palestinians and injured six others during a six-hour invasion that they carried out in Azun, according to the United Nations leading to armed defense by Palestinians. One Israeli soldier was reportedly injured. My colleague Tamara Nassar writes that, quote, as Israel's ongoing genocide of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip carries on without interruption, 2023 has been the deadliest year in the occupied West Bank since since UN monitoring group OCHA began recording casualties in 2005. 
Israel is subjecting Palestinians in the occupied West Bank to a state of, quote, constant terror, a report released by the United Nations Human Rights Office has warned. With over 120 Palestinian children killed by Israeli forces in the area this year, children's agency UNICEF has also described 2023 as the, quote, deadliest year on record for Palestinian children in the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Tamara adds that, quote, while focus has been on the Gaza Strip, settlers have gunned for a second Nakba in the occupied West Bank. This year marked a growth in illegal construction by settlers unprecedented since the Second Intifada, the Human Rights Office, the UN Human Rights Office said, citing research by Israeli organizations. Some 370 Israeli settler attacks against Palestinians have been recorded since October 7th, which include attacks on property and people. Quote, in many incidents, settlers were accompanied by Israeli forces or were themselves wearing Israeli forces uniforms and carrying army rifles, the UN Human Rights Report said. For more on the situation in the West Bank, read Tamara Nassar's latest post, Constant Terror in the West Bank as 2023 Ends, on electronicintifada.net. And now we're going to turn to our program. Later on, as always, we'll hear from John about the latest maneuvers by the Palestinian resistance against Israel's genocidal army. But first, we turn to Ali for a detailed look at a sensationalist New York Times article, which has given new life to Israel's propaganda campaign, asserting without any credible evidence that Hamas systematically used rape as a weapon of war during its military assault on Israeli army bases and settlements across the boundary from Gaza. Ali, let's turn to you. And and just a warning to our viewers and listeners that we'll be discussing uh, sexual violence, including graphic descriptions of the alleged acts. Ali, you're going to give us an update now on the story that we've covered before. Uh, Israel's claims that Hamas fighters systematically carried out rapes as a weapon of war on October 7th. Uh, Give us a sense of what's going on now. Yes, thanks, Nora. As you'll remember, we examined these claims in detail during our our live stream on December 4th, and then we cut that into a separate video that has been viewed almost 200,000 times on YouTube. And I think we showed pretty conclusively that Israel had presented absolutely no credible evidence to support these inflammatory assertions, and that this was a propaganda campaign to demonize Palestinians as monsters to try to erode support for them and to distract from or justify Israel's genocide in Gaza. In other words, toxic war propaganda. We'll add a link to that video below because a lot of the analysis we did then also applies to what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Um, so what's new in this story, Ali? You know, hasn't Israel uh, come up with some, has Israel come up with some solid evidence, you know, that wasn't available before? What is, what is this new evidence, supposedly? The short answer is a resounding no. But on December 28th, the New York Times published a big story that has revived the rape claims. It's a sensational story headlined, Screams Without Words how Hamas weaponized sexual violence on October 7th. The lead author is Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Jeffrey Gettleman, which I suppose gives the story uh, extra weight. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, what, what do you think was the intended effect? Uh, and what 
it has been the effect so far of this story? Well, I can tell you personally, I've had a couple of people say to me, you know, Ali, I watched your video from a few weeks ago, but surely now after this big New York Times investigation, you must acknowledge that the evidence is mounting, that there was systematic sexual violence perpetrated by Hamas on October 7th. Right. Uh, and do you agree with that? Does this New York Times piece really change the picture? Well, again, the short answer is absolutely not. This is still a genocidal propaganda campaign, not based on any credible evidence. And I, I hope to show that today. Here's what Speak Up, a feminist initiative made up of more than a dozen women's and human rights groups in the Middle East region has said in reaction to the New York Times report. They say, this report, allegedly detailing the events and claiming to verify incidents of rape, spans over 3,500 words. However, it fails to present any concrete evidence or include accounts from the alleged victims. They also say, and I quote, as Middle East and North Africa human rights organizations and feminist groups dedicated to supporting victims of gender-based violence and striving to eradicate sexual violence in all its forms, we recognize the possibility of sexual violence occurring in times of war and conflict. Despite this, we find the New York Times report profoundly disturbing for its lack of credible arguments, evidence, and failure to engage with any of the alleged victims. We vehemently oppose the exploitation of women's bodies and experiences in perpetuating misleading propaganda. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah. So, okay, take us through some of what's in the New York Times article and why you and many others, including Speak Up, um, have concluded that it doesn't contain you know, any new or credible evidence. Okay, so let's begin at the beginning. And again, I just want to warn people that I'm going to be reading very graphic descriptions of alleged acts of sexual violence contained in the New York Times and other sources. So please do be aware of that. The New York Times opens its story with these very emotive sentences, which I'll read. At first, she was known simply as the woman in the black dress. In a grainy video, you can see her lying on her back dress torn, legs spread, vagina exposed, her face is burned beyond recognition and her right hand covers her eyes. The video was shot in the early hours of October 8 by a woman searching for a missing friend at the site of the rave in southern Israel where the day before Hamas terrorists massacred hundreds of young Israelis. The video went viral with thousands of people responding, desperate to know if the woman in the black dress was their missing friend, sister, or daughter. One family knew exactly who she was. Gal Abdush, mother of two from a working-class town in central Israel who disappeared from the rave that night with her husband. And then the New York Times goes on to imply that Gal Abdush was raped. The Times states, and I quote, based largely on the video evidence, which was verified by the New York Times, Israeli police officials say said they believed that Ms. Abdush was raped, end quote. Now, there's a lot going on here. First, the Times says that they verified the video. What does that mean? It means only that the video is really of Gal Abdush, but absolutely nowhere does the New York Times claim 
that the video shows Abdush being raped. They then state, and I quote, Israeli officials say that everywhere Hamas terrorists struck, the rave, the military bases along the Gaza border, and the kibbutzim, they brutalized women, end quote. In other words, this is an accusation from the Israeli state. It is not evidence. And then directly after this, the New York Times claims that Times claims that Gal Abdush has, quote, become a symbol of the horrors visited upon Israeli women and girls during the October 7 attacks. So that's the setup from the New York Times. Here is this poor woman who was raped, and she's just one of countless women and girls who suffered the same horrible fate. But already, even this thin innuendo about Gal Abdush is falling apart. How is it falling apart? Well, on January 2nd, Gal Abdush's sister, Miral Alta, came out and denied and denounced the New York Times' insinuations that Gal was raped on October 7th. Alta responded to a post on Instagram by Israeli propagandist Joseph Haddad, who was playing up the New York Times report claiming that there were mass rapes. Here's some excerpts of what Miral Alta wrote in her rather long comment which we have translated from Hebrew. She starts by saying, so the lady in the black dress is my sister. I really don't understand all the media reports about this story. Why do I say this? Because there were so many horrible stories, even more horrible. So why especially her story? It's all because of one video that was distributed without the family's knowledge, without permission. And then Miral Alta says, and I quote, yes, they raped, yes, they slaughtered, cut off heads and body parts. But in the case of my sister, no. Why not? At 6.51, Gal sends us a message to the WhatsApp group. We are on the border. You don't understand what's going on. Such explosions. We are out of here. At 7 o'clock, my brother-in-law calls his brother and says, they shot Gal. She is gurgling. So how in four minutes did they rape? slaughter and burn her, end quote. So note here that Miral Alta is repeating the widespread claims that there were rapes and torture, which she, like all Israeli, Israelis, has been fed by the government and media. But she specifically and categorically denies that the family believes this happened to her sister Gal Abdush. And she points out that from their perspective, this story is totally implausible. Miral Alta also states, quote, there is no medical evidence or test proving she, Gal, was raped. <laughs> um, I, I mean, you know, putting journalist malpractice aside, uh, why didn't she say this to New York Times reporters? Why, why do you think that the reporters have um, went with this as their kind of focus of the story? And, and why do you think Miral Alta is saying this now? Well, that's the amazing thing. According to Miral Alta, the family never even knew that the New York Times was writing about the alleged rape campaign or was going to allege that Gal Abdush was raped. She indicates that the family was manipulated by the New York Times. And she says, quote, note, the New York Times came to us saying they wanted to write an article memorializing Gal and Naji, and that's it. That's why we consented. We would never agree. Naji was Gal Abdush's husband who was also killed that day. 
And finally, Miral Alta addresses Joseph Haddad, the pro-Israel social media influencer who made the Instagram post promoting the New York Times story, and, and it's to his post she was responding. Alta says, Joseph, you do great work. If only there were more like you. Please, there is no proof there was rape. It's only based on the video, and if there is any other proof, of course, we would want to know. Uh, Ali, can we be sure that this comment is authentic and that it is really from Gal Abdusha's sister? I'm very confident we can, yes. Miral Alta, the author of the comment in question, has locked her Instagram account. However, there is an unlocked Facebook account with the same name, Miral Alta, but in Hebrew. And that account has the same avatar as the Instagram account, which is a map of the country and the Israeli flag. And scrolling through Alta's Facebook feed reveals she is, in fact, Gal Abdush's sister. For example, on October 7th, she pleads for help to find Gal and Gal's husband, Naji. On October 16th, she posted Gal's death notice and calls Gal my sister. And then on October 23rd, she posted a video of the funeral of Gal and Naji. Incidentally, uh, Miral Alta's Facebook page reveals that her politics a very far right in Israeli terms. This is not someone who sympathizes with Palestinians in uh, any way. I just want to also acknowledge here the assistance of uh, investigative journalist David Sheen with translation and verification. Thank you, David. Yeah, thanks, David. Okay, so this uh, is a, a pretty whole-scale, you know, discrediting of the New York Times story. Um, you know, we could stop right here and just you know, for once and for all, be done with it. But, uh, but I'm assuming you have more. <laughs> well, there's a lot more. And, yeah. But rather than go through the New York Times story line by line, I want to cover a couple of key themes which help us understand this sophisticated piece of war propaganda and how it's constructed. Yeah. And I think will also be tools for people to start to deconstruct other uh, pieces of war propaganda. So I, the questions I ask in analyzing this are, what are the accusations? Who are the supposed witnesses? What is the alleged evidence? And who are the alleged victims? Great. Okay, so uh, let's start. What, what are the accusations? The thing I want people to remember is that from the start, Israel has not been alleging that there might have been one or two incidents of sexual assault on October 7th, but that this was a systematic practice on a vast scale. Here's what the New York Times claims. A two-month investigation by the Times uncovered painful new details establishing that the attacks against women were not isolated events, but part of a broader pattern of gender-based violence on October 7th. Relying on video footage, photographs, GPS data from mobile phones, and interviews with more than 150 people, including witnesses, medical personnel, soldiers, and rape counselors, the Times identified at least seven locations where Israeli women and girls appear to have been sexually assaulted or mutilated, end quote. A couple of things to note here. First, they claim there was a, a broad pattern or broader pattern. And then they suggest there's lots of evidence, including video footage. It all looks very solid to the casual reader, doesn't it? Right. But you, you, you would think from the, their big, bold claims that there would be tons of evidence. However, 
as we'll see there isn't. The New York Times does not claim, and nor has anyone else claimed, that there is a single video out of the tens of thousands filmed on October 7th that, in which a sexual assault can be seen taking place. That is a really inexplicable absence if this was indeed a deliberate and broad campaign of sexual violence, as Israel and the New York Times allege. The evidence should simply be everywhere. Uh, okay, so what about the witnesses? Um, the New York Times says that they interviewed dozens of people, um, and it's the New York Times, you know, a credible uh, outlet. Surely, you know, that, that should amount for something. Right. They say more than 150 people, including witnesses, medical personnel, soldiers, and rape counselors. Let's start with the supposed eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. The Times state, and I quote, Sapir, a 24-year-old accountant, has become one of the Israeli police's key witnesses. She does not want to be fully identified, saying she would be hounded for the rest of her life if her last name were revealed, end quote. Sapir spoke to the New York Times, and she claims to have seen heavily armed gunmen rape and kill at least five women. Sapir said she herself had been shot and was feeling faint and lying in the bushes, when she saw what happened, again, a warning that this is very graphic. Here's how the Times describes Sapir's claim, and I'm quoting. The first victim said she, was, she saw a young woman with copper color hair. Let me start that again. The first victim she said she saw was a young woman with copper colored hair, blood running down her back, pants pushed down to her knees, one man pulled her by the hair and made her bend over. Another penetrated her, Sapir said. And every time she flinched, he plunged a knife into her back. She said she then watched another woman shredded into pieces. While one terrorist raped her, she said another pulled out a box cutter and sliced off her breast. Her breast. One continues to rape her and the other throws her breast to someone else and they play with it, throw it and it falls on the road, Sapir said. She said the men sliced her face, and then the woman fell out of view. Around the same time, she said, she saw three other women raped, and terrorists carrying the severed heads of three more women, end quote. Now, that, of course, sounds pretty horrifying and dramatic. The first thing to say here is that, is that this is not a new supposed eyewitness. This is the same person whose testimony Israeli police presented at the press conference back in November and who we discussed in our de December 4th video as well. As we pointed out then, most of the other Western media that previously reported her account, and that includes CNN and the Washington Post, failed to mention her claim that Hamas men were dancing around with severed heads. And that's because this outlandish claim that has never been corroborated totally discredits her as a witness. As reported by Hebrew language media in mid-November, this same witness had previously claimed, quote, I saw one of them carrying a naked girl on his shoulder while the others were raising decapitated heads like in a kind of demonstration of power, end quote. Now, the New York Times, as I read, does make a passing mention of Sapir claiming that she, quote, saw terrorists carrying the severed heads of three more women. But the Times does not follow up on this extraordinary claim in any way. 
nor do they quote any Israeli official source claiming that multiple severed heads or headless bodies were located at this specific site. Speak Up, the coalition of women's and human rights groups that I mentioned earlier, notes that the horrific acts that Sapir describes would, quote, typically leave substantial physical evidence, yet the narrative does not mention any supporting forensic or physical proof to validate these events, not even the bodies. Speak Up also notes that Israeli police chose not to collect any forensic evidence from this and other locations, which would have been very feasible given the bloody scenarios described in order to fact check and confirm the testimony of uh, the alleged eyewitnesses. And they also observe in relation to Sapir's claims that her testimony comes from an individual who describes being shot and feeling faint, which could impair their ability to perceive and recall events accurately. accurately. They say physical trauma or distress can significantly affect memory and perception. Yet this individual provides a detailed fiction-like account that appears to have undergone no fact-checking and is suspiciously identical to wartime atrocity propaganda. Yeah. Um, and according to the New York Times, Sapir wasn't the only witness to this key incident. Uh, is that right? That's right. The New York Times names another alleged eyewitness to this same incident called Yura Carroll, uh, and it describes him as a 22-year-old security consultant. He was hiding in the same location as Sapir, but the same witness, and again, he's the only other alleged eyewitness to this incident, appears to have changed his story. Here's what the New York Times says, quote, in an interview, Mr. Carroll said he barely lifted his head to look at the road, but he also described seeing a woman raped and killed, end quote. Now, the first thing to note here is that he claims he barely lifted his head, and yet he somehow saw all this going on. He also doesn't say anything about Hamas men prancing around with a bunch of severed heads, something I suspect would be very hard to miss if it actually happened. But what he's telling the New York Times is completely different to what he was previously reported as saying. Here's how the Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported his account on November 8th about the horrifying rape, murder, and dancing around with severed heads that Sapir claims to have seen. And I quote now from Haaretz, and this was back uh, in November. Another witness who has recounted the incident to police was a man who was hiding behind the eyewitness and didn't see the rape. He said she told him at the time what she saw, end quote. So this second eyewitness now being cited by the New York Times said way back in early November that he did not see the rape, but only that Sapir told him about it. And yet now he's repeating it to the New York Times as if he saw it himself. So apparently, the New York Times did not even take the basic journalistic step of checking whether the claims of this supposed eyewitness have remained consistent over time. Yeah. Uh, what about any other reports uh, on any other eyewitness accounts in this New York Times story? Yeah. The New York Times claims there was one other incident of rape in a different location and that there were two eyewitnesses for that incident. 
The first eyewitness is someone called Raz Cohen, whom, whom the New York Times identifies as having worked recently in the Democratic Republic of Congo, training Congolese soldiers. That sounds very wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> According to, right. According to his account, he was, quote, hiding in a dried up stream bed, end quote. About 40 meters away, he claims he saw a white van pull up. And now I'll read again from the New York Times. He said he then saw five men wearing civilian clothes, all carrying knives and one carrying a hammer, dragging a woman across the ground. She was young, naked and screaming. They all gather around her, Mr. Cohen said. She's standing up. They start raping her. I saw the men standing in a half circle around her. One penetrates her. She screams. I still remember her voice. Screams without words. End quote. And that's where the, the dramatic title to this whole article comes from. Again, the New York Times does not speak of any corroborating physical evidence and forensic evidence such as blood on the ground or a body. It's just Raz Cohen's account. And that account also appears to have changed over time, as the journalist Max Blumenthal has documented. Right after October 7th, Cohen didn't report seeing any rapes, but over time he started claiming he did. And those claims are inconsistent with each other. Let's take uh, one glaring example. In the Times, Cohen claims to have seen just one woman being murdered and raped. But in an interview with the PBS NewsHour on October 10th, Raz Cohen gave a very different account. Let's uh, take a look at that. He a terrorist and they told everyone to, to run away. And uh, that's what we did. The terrorists uh, shoot, on, shoot on us. And, uh, I, and I saw a lot of people uh, died in my eyes. I, I murder in my eyes. Uh, people get shot in the head, in the shoulder. A lot of dead bodies. Uh, we go to hide in a bush, a big bush uh, in the in, in the creek, and uh, we was uh, in the in the bush uh, something like six or seven hours. A lot of uh, uh, terrorists uh, go around us and search uh, search for uh, for people to kill the terrorists. Uh, people from uh, Gaza raped uh, a, a girl. And uh, after they raped them, they uh, uh, killed them and murdered them with a knife or, uh, or the opposite, kill. And after this rape, they, they did that, they laughed. They always laughed. I can't, uh, can't forget how they left on, on the... Yeah, so as you can see, Cohen there seems to be talking about a number of rapes. Uh, but in the New York Times, it's only one. Uh, yeah, and so the, and then uh, Max uh, Blumenthal has pointed to a number of inconsistencies over time in Raz Cohen's stories, in that he he appears at the beginning right after October seventh, then he disappears for a while, and then he comes back into the media right at the point where Israel relaunched this uh, propaganda campaign about mass rapes uh, back in. Uh, the end of November, early December, around the time we talked about it on the live stream last time. Right. And uh, the Times claims that there is a second witness to this uh, alleged incident, too. Is that right? Yeah. The Times states, and I quote, Shoam Geta, one of Mr. Cohen's friends and a fashion designer, 
said the two were hiding together in the stream bed. He said he saw at least four men step out of the van and attack the woman who ended up between their legs. He said that they were talking, giggling, and shouting, and that one of them stabbed her with a knife repeatedly, literally butchering her. And, I mean, obviously this is very convincing, right? Don't you find this convincing? Well, I mean, the thing to notice here is that the Times does not even quote Getter specifically saying the woman was raped, although he does claim to have seen what by any account would be a, a brutal attack. However, this is not the first time that Goethe has spoken out. Mm. He's quoted in an NBC news report on October 8, which claims he watched as a woman was cut with a knife. But there's no mention then of any rape. Goethe, who has now been deployed to Gaza as part of the Israeli military, is very active on Facebook. We found none of his earlier posts about October 7th saying anything about witnessing a rape. Getter and his family also appear to be monetizing his experience on October 7th in order to sell his fashion line. Um, but the thing to remember here is that the New York Times is claiming a broad pattern of rape as a weapon of war. But these are the only so-called eyewitnesses they managed to produce during their two-month-long investigation. Right. It's not very much. No. And uh, the Times does say that they talk to rescuers and medics, uh, right? I mean, what about the credibility of their testimonies? Right. Well, one of the key sources for the New York Times articles is actually the Israeli military. You know, the same organization that has slaughtered more than 22,000 people in Gaza over the last three months. And they've also been the gatekeepers for the New York Times, deciding who they can and can't talk to. The New York Times even says in the article that they could only speak to certain people under conditions set by the Israeli military. And you have to only have to imagine the Times taking the Russian military seriously as a source on, say, alleged atrocities by Ukraine. But that's exactly what they do throughout, throughout this article when it comes to the Israeli military, which, as we know, doesn't exactly have the best relationship with the truth. But they also appear to have relied extensively on an organization called Zaka, which the Times describes as a non-profit emergency response team, which all makes it sound very wholesome and credible. But that is very far from the case. What, uh, what do we know about Zaka so far? Our friends at MondoWise published some really crucial and well-documented reporting on Zaka on December 30th. They point out that Zaka is a religious uh, Haredi organization specializing in collecting dead bodies and body parts from sites of unnatural deaths and transporting them to morgues according to strict Jewish religious laws. It mm. is extremely controversial even within Israel. On religious grounds, they oppose forensic examinations and autopsies. It was founded in the late 1990s by Yehuda Meshi Zahav, uh, who was previously the leader of Keshet, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish terrorist group that targeted forensic pathologists and used explosives against shops selling secular newspapers. Meshi Zahav led Zaka until 2021 when he attempted uh, suicide after shocking revelations of dozens of rape and sexual assault cases uh, against him. It has also been described by some as a militia. 
Now, Zaka members have been widely quoted in press reports about October 7th, including this New York Times piece. The Mondo Weiss article points out that the testimonies provided by Zaka's members, all men, most of whom are volunteers, on sexual violence on October 7th, are based on their interpretation of what they claim to have seen on bodies they collected after the attack. Not only do these men lack the professional qualifications to make such assessments, they are not medical experts, but their testimonies also lack details. No age, no location, and no time. Details and or evidence have not been given to journalists who have asked to see them while reporting on these testimonies. This means that it is impossible to either confirm or debunk them. That's from Mondoweiss. Mondoweiss also points out that many of the accounts have been contradictory and inconsistent. Even worse, many of the accounts given by Zakar members since October 7th have proven to be outright fabrications. This includes many of the sensational claims that Hamas fighters tied civilians together and burned them, including children. And on a previous live stream, of course, we debunked that in the case of the claims at Kibbutz Be'eri. It also included the false story of the belly of a pregnant woman being sliced open and the fetus uh, being torn out, a really horrible uh, claim. An investigation by Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, on December 4th tied many of these fabrications directly back to Zaka. For example, here is Yossi Landau, a leader of Zaka, claiming that he saw the, that body of the pregnant woman who had the fetus cut out of her. Let's look at that. It did. But I can tell you, I witnessed myself when I got into the house and I saw that lady on the floor and in, 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 in blood. And I turned her over. I saw her stomach is wide open, ripped open, and a baby, an unborn baby, is there stabbed. And she had a gunshot in the back of her head. And as you can hear right there, yeah, he's saying he saw it with his own eyes. Mm -hmm. Now, Haaretz says that this exact same story was repeated to them by a member of Zaka who they don't name. It may have been Yossi Landau. Uh, it could have been someone else, but they say a member of Zaka. And that it took place in Kibbutz Be'eri. And here's what Haaretz concludes, and I quote, they got a comment from the Kibbutz about this. Uh, about the, the many allegations that were, that were made. And, and here's what they say, again, quoting from Haaretz. The kibbutz adds that the story of the pregnant woman reported by Zaka is not relevant to Be'eri. The police say the case is not known to them. And the pathology source at the Shura army base told Haaretz that he was unaware of the case. And since then, that was uh, on December 4th, that Haaretz article, Nothing has come to light. This was a fabrication. And on October 11th, CBS News reported the following, and I quote, Yossi Landau, the head of operations for the southern region of Zaka, Israel's volunteer civilian emergency response organization, told CBS News he saw with his own eyes children and babies who had been beheaded, end quote. As we all know now, the beheaded, beheaded babies story, which was also repeated by President Joe Biden, is totally fake, a fabrication. 
And in their response to Haaretz, Zaka said the following, and I quote, the volunteers are not pathology experts and do not have the professional tools to identify a murdered person and his age or declare how he was murdered, end quote. And yet, Nora, the New York Times relies on Zaka and the claims of its volunteers, including specifically Yossi Landau, who you just saw lying uh, on that video clip, to interpret that women and girls allegedly found dead were also actually raped. This would be really laughable uh, if it were not just so horrible and serious what we were dealing with. And I, I want to say also, the Mondo Weiss article details Zaka's ties to the Israeli government and to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who praise it for its role in Israel's post-October 7 public relations campaign because they say that people who are identified as rescuers or first responders have an inherent credibility. Right. So again, another like apolitical humanitarian adjacent group that has absolutely no stake in, you know, fomenting or um, coming up with any of these like absolutely atrocious stories. Um, Ali, what else caught your attention in terms of witness accounts. I, I, I'm using scare quotes like more right. than I've ever used in my life here. <laughs> <laughs> right. The New York Times includes a story provided by a paramedic in an Israeli commando unit who has claimed that he found the bodies of two teenage girls together in a room in Kibbutz Be'eri. This story has been reported by other media over the past couple of months as well. According to the Times, the soldier claimed that one of the girls was lying on her side with boxer shorts ripped, bruises by her groin. The other was sprawled on the floor face down, he said, pajama pants pulled up to her knees, bottom exposed, semen smeared on her back. That's from the Times. Now, the Times admits that they were only allowed to speak to this paramedic with the permission of the Israeli military and without identifying him. Now, in our previous video on this topic, we reported on how this very same story has been debunked. No two girls fitting this description were found together in Kibbutz Berry. No forensic evidence was ever collected, and no photos were taken corroborating this claim. And recall that on December 22nd, the New York Times published its own very lengthy article on Kibbutz Berry separate from the rape article we're talking about today. That article about Barry makes no mention of two girls being found together in this manner, and it makes no mention of any rapes or sexual assaults in Kibbutz Barry whatsoever. Incredible. Um, you said you want to talk about the evidence the New York Times says does exist. What about that? Right. You might recall that in our previous video, I said there had been a number of articles and reports on Israel's mass rape claims. That includes in Haaretz, the Times of Israel, CNN and the Washington Post, the Sunday Times in the UK and others. And I said that all these stories fit a very distinct pattern. They all start with very sensational and shocking headlines and, claim, and, and then claim systematic rape and atrocities on October 7th. But then over the course of hundreds or sometimes thousands of words, the articles provide excuse after excuse for why there is no forensic evidence, no photographs of crime scenes, 
and most glaringly of all, no living victims and accusers. Mm -hmm. And this New York Times story fits that pattern exactly. You can just go through it paragraph by paragraph and tick off all the excuses, and they're all the same ones we've seen before. So, for example, they claim that Israel was too busy on October 7th to collect forensic evidence. They claim that Jewish ritual requires the quick burial of bodies, and so that's why there were no autopsies. They claim that the Zaka volunteers have religious restrictions against photographing bodies, so they didn't document any of the crime scenes they allegedly saw. So the effect of all this on the reader is to convey a message that you have to take our word for it because we're the New York Times, and, well, there's no smoke without fire, right? Right. And if you don't believe it, you're a rape apologist, and maybe you're an anti-Semite as right, well. Right. It's all really highly manipulative and dishonest, but it's sadly what we've come to expect from the newspaper that shamelessly promoted the uh, Bush administration's lies about weapons of mass destruction, among so many other lies over the decades. Yeah. Uh, in our last video, uh, you said that Israel had not identified any living survivors claiming to have been victims of sexual assault or rape on October 7th. Uh, is, is that still the case definitively? Does the, does the New York Times speak to any? Well, this is the key. The New York Times says that Israeli authorities have still given no number or estimate for how many people were victims of this alleged pattern of rape as a weapon of war. Mm. They also state, and I quote, no survivors have spoken publicly. But there is this intriguing paragraph. Quote, there are at least three women and one man who were sexually assaulted and survived, according to Gil Chorev, a spokesman for Israel's Ministry of Welfare and Social Affairs. None of them has been willing to come physically for treatment, he said. Two therapists said they were working with a woman who was gang-raped at the rave and was in no condition to talk to investigators or reporters. So, the end quote. So the mm -hmm. only source for the existence of living victims is the government that is committing genocide in Gaza against the people it accuses of the mass rapes. And it says none of them have been willing to come forward physically, which raises doubts as as to whether they even exist. I mean, nobody is saying, even that government person, that uh, anyone has laid eyes on them. Yeah. And while it claims that there was a woman who was gang raped at the rave, the New York Times does not say when this happened or even say that it was done by Hamas or any other Palestinians. These omissions suggest that if this woman exists, she might well have been assaulted prior to the Hamas offensive by other people attending the rave. But remember, the Israelis keep telling us that, A, this was a broad pattern, a campaign of rape as a weapon of war, and B, that we have to believe women. Well, so far, there are still no women to believe because, as the New York Times admits, no one has come forward. They even have this extraordinary quote from the director of the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel, a woman called Arit Solzianu, and she says, many people are looking for, a for the golden evidence of a woman who will testify about what happened to her, but don't look for that. Don't put this pressure on this woman, Solzianu said. 
She then claims the corpses tell the story, end quote, except that the corpses don't tell the story because no forensic evidence was collected from the corpses, no autopsies were done, and no crime scene photographs were taken. And we've just talked about the quality of the so-called eyewitnesses. So again, what they're saying here is just take our word for it. And mm -hmm. if you ask too many questions, it means you're a, a bad person and a rape apologist who refuses to believe women, and you probably hate Jews too. Exactly. Uh, it, it's often said that rape is, you know, endemic during armed conflicts, uh, that, that it's regularly used as a weapon of war. Why couldn't that be a possibility here? Well, one thing to say, Nora, is that, you know, even if they find that there were the, the, a victim at some point who, and, and proof that this victim was attacked, that's not the same as saying that there was a pattern of rape and rape as a, a weapon of war. But they still haven't even credibly shown that. But rather than answer you in more depth, myself, I'm going to refer to Craig Mukhaiber, the UN human rights official who resigned over the UN's inaction uh, regarding the genocide in Gaza. Of course, we interviewed him on our own live stream a few weeks ago. But in an interview on the Useful Idiots podcast, uh, also a few weeks ago, he addressed the mass rape claims in detail and also talked about how these things should be investigated. And our friends at Useful Idiots have given us permission to play a couple of minutes of that. And I think it's worth li listening to because Mukhaiber is a human rights defender who worked within the UN system for decades and knows exactly how these things should be done. So let's uh, look, listen to Craig Mukhaiber answering a question from Useful Idiots co-host uh, Katie Halper. Israel has accused Hamas of using rape as a weapon on a systemic level, and this is a charge that the media has been picking up, especially CNN and Jake Tapper. In fact, here's Jake Tapper suggesting that the UN is ignoring the allegations and ignoring them because of anti-Semitism. CNN has, has led the coverage when it comes to the evidence uh, mounting in Israel of uh, rapes and, and sex crimes committed by Hamas against mm. women and girls, maybe even against men. Uh, on October 7th. Why do you think the United Nations and the international community has been so slow to condemn these atrocities? I, I can't think of a, a real reason. Um, well, let me just put it this way. I've heard anti-Semitism hypothesized as a reason why the UN and the international community might be uh, so slow to acknowledge this. What's your reaction? Yeah, well, I mean, if you ask me as somebody who's worked in conflict zones and everything for a very long time, I would say that it's entirely possible that some sexual violence occurred on October 7th. And if it did, that's a horrific war crime and any perpetrators have to be held accountable under the rule of uh, law. Not held accountable by attacking civilian populations or carrying out torture or abusing fighters or anything like that. But if it did, it wouldn't surprise me because it, it always happens. It's a common feature of every armed conflict I've ever seen. And indeed, we know Palestinians have been subjected to sexual violence at the hands of the Israelis, starting with the Nakba in 1947 and 48, and then throughout all of the decades since and continuing up until today, which reported sexual violence being reported by Palestinian prisoners who've just been released in the, in the prisoner exchange. So we know that that is still going on. 
So it's entirely possible that someone committed sexual violence on, on October 7th. It's also possible that there wasn't sexual violence on October 7th, because even though it's a constant feature of all uh, situations of armed conflict, October 7th was just a matter of hours, right? It didn't go on for weeks or days. That would allow a lot of opportunities for abuses by, uh, by, by soldiers that are so typical uh, of every conflict. Um, so that, that's possible as well. The truth is at this stage, we don't know. And what people are being asked to do is to accept as fact allegations being made by the government of Israel. Remember, this is not victims coming forward by the government of Israel, which has engaged in serial fabrication of atrocity claims. So what, what the international community has said, and I agree with is we need an independent international investigation. This is a serious charge. And if any woman or man was subjected to sexual violence, they have a right uh, to have justice for that. And that means you need an independent international investigation to find out what happened, what didn't happen, right? Uh, by the way, that's another reason why you need a ceasefire, because you need to carry out these kinds of investigations. But Israel has refused an international investigation. It's even refused to cooperate with the standing uh, International Commission of Inquiry that has offered, uh, offered to do this. So you can't, on the one hand, say these things have happened and then not allow an investigation to, to discuss using internationally proven methodologies on how to deal with these things, on, on whether they, they have happened. So far, we haven't seen any evidence of, a, I mean, one representation that's coming out of uh, the Israeli government is a charge of a, a campaign of, of, of systematic sexual violence, a widespread campaign of, I mean, Anything is possible, but we haven't seen even a hint of evidence that there was a campaign of systematic sexual violence on October 7th. Doesn't mean there was no sexual violence. And again, I will repeat, so people who are cutting out my comments to attack me as a rape denier, that any acts of sexual violence should be held accountable under the rule of law. But they haven't allowed an international investigation. I mean... Hmm. Oh, you're muted. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, I, I just wanted to say, I think that's a very reasonable and measured view from Craig Mukhaiber. But instead of inviting and assisting an international investigation, Israel is engaging in an international propaganda campaign with the complicity of major media, including and especially the New York Times. And I also want to point out that while, as Craig Mukhaiber says, sexual violence is one characteristic of many armed conflicts, so is propaganda. Mm -hmm. Many viewers will recall, for example, that back in 2011, the U.S. State Department under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton claimed that Libyan forces under the command of Colonel Qaddafi were being given Viagra and told to carry out rape on a mass scale. This atrocity story was deployed deliberately to convince Americans of the urgent need for U.S. and NATO military intervention to help overthrow Qaddafi, and we all uh, remember seeing the video of Hillary Clinton laughing maniacally after uh, Qaddafi was murdered and, and brutally put on display. Um, later, however, U.S. intelligence officials admitted that there was no evidence for the Viagra and mass rape claims. Representatives of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and UN investigators also said that their organizations were unable to find evidence supporting the claims. But guess who Israel trotted out a couple of weeks ago 
to market its accusations of mass rape against uh, Hamas. Uh, let's take a look at that. Well, no. Many women and girls were attacked brutally by Hamas on October 7th, and they have testified to the gender-based violence that they both experienced and witnessed. As a global community, we must respond to weaponized sexual violence wherever it happens with absolute condemnation. There can be no justifications and no excuses. Ugh. Sorry. <laughs> right. No, I think that's a, a, a gut reaction. Yeah. So uh, as, as we now know, Hillary Clinton is telling another one of her lies when she claims that many women and girls in Israel have, quote, testified to the gender-based violence that they both experienced and witnessed. Mm -hmm. As the Times admits, not a single survivor has come forward and spoken and claimed that they experienced this kind of violence. Right. So what is the takeaway from all of this? I mean, the bottom line here is that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza and is desperate to distract attention from that, as well as to justify its crimes. With public opinion, especially progressive and liberal opinion, turning against it, Israel desperately needs to try to shore up support. And I think this is the perfect narrative to win over progressives and to divide the support base for Palestinian rights. The power of the rape claims is that people are reluctant to question them. And that's exactly why we need to be the ones here who go through the claims of the so-called evidence with a fine-tooth comb. Really what they rely on is classic racist and orientalist notions of Palestinians and Arab men as demonic savages who have a predilection for such horrible crimes. Right. And recall that this, is, that this idea of colonized people as dangerous brutes who attack and rape white and settler women is a very old one. As the Jim Crow Museum observes, the long-standing brute character portrays black men as innately savage, animalistic, destructive, and criminal, deserving punishment and even death. The terrible crime most often mentioned in connection with the black brute was rape, specifically the rape of a white woman. That's from the museum. And they add, at the beginning of the 20th century, much of the virulent anti-black propaganda that found its way into scientific journals, local newspapers, and best-selling novels focused on the stereotype of the black racist. And I think, Nora, this is really just another version of that. Right. Oh, thanks for all of that, Ali. Um, I mean, it just, you know, it, there's also the, what what's happening now that, you know, there's a, a, a video of an interview with Mia Shem, who is one of the captives uh, taken by Palestinian resistance and then released uh, when there was that very you know, short period of, of a, a truce, um, who said that that basically she 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 said God she was saying something like um, uh, there was a, a the, the guard that was um, watching over her basically raped her her with his eyes. Um, and that uh, this was her Holocaust. Um, she also describes the, you know, the evilness of 
of the children uh, that she met who wouldn't share their candy with her, you know, like, uh, but, but basically crying, saying that she was um, almost, you know, basically raped. Uh, but without being raped. Without being raped. Yeah, she, so, she, yeah let's just be clear about that. Yeah. At no point does she claim that anyone laid a finger on her in in that sense. Right. And, and that's the case too. You know, I, I didn't want to, you could have a thousand women who, who, who come out of Gaza or come out of any situation and say, nobody touched me. That right. doesn't take away from the one who might say, you know, who might say that she was and an, who could provide a credible account or if there was evidence. But Nobody, nobody is coming out and saying that. I mean, we yeah. saw other women who, who were held in Gaza and then went home saying there was the one woman, uh, Agam and her mother, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't remember their full names, who said, and people saw this clip, that she would arm wrestle with one of the Hamas men, but that he put a towel between their hands so that they that they wouldn't touch physically and there are, there are other testimonies like that so again it all of this is based on exploiting people's belief that mm -hmm. is uh inculcated into them drummed into them by decades of propaganda that arab men muslim men uh third world men black men because this rape propaganda also was very common in apartheid south africa right. that they that these men are inherently wild and dangerous and after our women and this is exactly what this story is relying on yeah. and it i don't think that something so evidence-free and so sensational could pass against almost any other group in this day and age except perhaps palestinians right that, at least at least in the respectable western press which is what we've seen. Right. And the New York Times, um, you know, just keeps peddling Israeli propaganda to, um, to, to, to manufacture consent for this ongoing genocide. It is atrocious and, and really the, the highest level of journalistic malpractice. Um, thank you so much, Ali. Uh, before we go to our jelly bean segment with John, um, I know you wanted to say something about um, our our listeners and our viewers and, and the support that we've received. Yeah, I I, I just wanted to say, and by the way, uh, again, I, I, before I do that, I want to thank Tamara for the incredible job with putting yeah. getting all that media i think yeah. there were 45 pieces of media that that i had and tamara is amazing for uh, making that all happen Indeed. i also i already thank david sheen for his help i also want to thank our colleague michael brown because he did some very helpful research i thank them all any mistakes however are all mine uh, so <laughs> you know uh but uh yeah, I just want to say it's now the new year and throughout the month of December, we had our annual fundraising campaign and uh, that's not something we like to do in the midst of this situation, the ongoing genocide. We prefer to be focused as much as possible on the work and on the coverage, but that's what we have to do to keep going. And I just want to say thank you to the so many thousands of people who uh, who did make donations, 
you can see your gifts at work right now on this live stream, all the work we put into it, all the work that goes into preparing it. You can see your donation at work on the website, all of the writing we publish from our um, colleagues and friends in Gaza, uh, and all the other reporting we do. That is what your support does, and we're very grateful for it. So I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, and to anyone who didn't make a gift, hey, it's never too late. Uh, you can always hit that Donate Now button and be part of it and be someone who helps share this information with the world. But mostly I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Ali, for piloting the ship for all of us. Um, and, uh, yeah, let's let's bring on Asa and John. Um, Asa, I know you, that you, you just wanted to, to make a quick comment before we go to John. Um, yeah, just to thank you, Ali, and um, Tamara and everyone for that incredible segment. I, I mean, listening to it, I, I couldn't help but, I mean, this is a point that we made before, but I couldn't help but be reminded of, again, the labor anti-Semitism crisis. This, I mean, this is this is like a very much more serious version of the labor anti-Semitism crisis in a way, because it, 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 it's a kind of shock and awe where you these massive claims are made you know hamas carried out mass rape on on the 7th of october you know there is a crisis of anti-semitism in the labor party huge broad unevidenced claims that you have you have to there's a massive sort of moral panic about it and you're supposed to take that as the starting point and you're supposed to believe that without evidence and if you ask for evidence of it you then become guilty of or at least suspected of being an apologist for rape an apologist yeah. for anti-Semitism, and it is—it's such a—and people have been making the point in 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 the comments as well that you know, and this is another way that it's similar that um, that well, there was one comment here as a survivor of actual mm. sexual violence, I find these lies deeply angering. Yeah. That you know, claim these these um, unevidenced, massively broad claims are damaging to um, you know to to real survivors of sexual violence in the same way that the, the fake labor anti-semitism crisis was damaging to F, genuine anti-racist efforts yeah yeah absolutely and that's why you know i i mean it just it angers me that we have to spend time you know doing this kind of debunking um of such like just unbelievably uh disgusting propaganda that we all know what the what the true you know goal is um yeah and and yet it is really important to keep doing it um you know and I, that that's exactly the reason for it because it's it's yeah. horrific to, i mean it was bad enough to have to assess all these claims of anti-semitism right? right because there there right. was you know a, a lot of these claims were really horrible to read you know yeah um, and this is even more horrible you know i don't envy ali uh, having to you know plow through yeah, all through all of that. yeah and that that's that's the intent of this right 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 and to to a, a gullible you know liberal new york times reading audience especially in the new york in 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 uh, the new york times uh and in the u.s where where it is uh, primarily directed toward it's it's a way to you know, like as Ali said, kind of drive a wedge between um, you know the Palestine solidarity movement to 
um, again, kind of uh, revive this very disgusting anti-Arab uh, Muslim, you know, anti-Palestinian you know, anti man uh, sort of racism, um, and and once again um, paint Israelis as the true and only victims, um, as Israel is slaughtering more than 22,000 people in the last three months. Uh, it's it's astonishing and atrocious, and so I'm really glad that that we're able to do that. Um, all right, let's turn to John. I know everyone's waiting for that. Uh, there has been a lot uh, that has happened in terms of Palestinian resistance and the maneuvers uh, by uh, Kassam brigades over the last uh, week. John, give us a sense of, um, well, first, actually, if you could just kind of talk about the significance of the assassination of Saleh al-Aruri in Beirut, Lebanon yesterday and kind of um, how that kind of uh, sets the scene for what we're going to be talking about as well. Yeah, good to see everybody. Sorry, that was hard to listen to. I, I'm sorry for people. Um, I'm sorry for the New York Times uh, pathetic journalism and that, uh, that that's being weaponized in that way. Um, yeah, Sahla Haruri uh, was assassinated yesterday in the Dahia in, this, in the, uh, you know, what they call the Hezbollah stronghold, the Hezbollah neighborhood um, in Beirut. Uh, in a meeting with apparently uh, top Qassam commanders um, in Lebanon. Um, and it's a significant blow. There's no question about it. Uh, he was a serious, um, uh, serious leader. You know, his family was interviewed yesterday and they said, um, you know, that he, he's not any more important than any child that was killed in Gaza and that he's a part of the struggle in the same trench as their people. And, um, you know, that's true in a sense, but in another sense, he's for sure an important leader. He was a founding member of the Qassam Brigades, the armed wing uh, of Hamas. Um, he spent most of his life in prison, um, as a lot of the leaders do, either uh, in prison or assassinated. And that's um, part of the cost of uh, being in the resistance program. Um, and when he was in prison, um, he really built the foundations of the Qassam Brigades, um, which in many ways, a key pillar of the movement was in the prisons, of course, um, because the Israelis arrest these guys, like in the first intifada, they arrested um, uh, people like Sahla Aruri or Yahya Sinwar before they even really knew um, what role the Qassam Brigades um, were playing in the intifada and the cells that they had organized. Um, Aruri's from the West Bank, uh, the southern West Bank town of, of Hebron, which is a Qassam Brigades and Hamas. Um, I, I don't want to use the word stronghold, but I, I guess that's the term that the media has been pushing on us over the last couple of days. So it's stuck in my head, but um, significant, um, you know, roots of the movement in the Hebron area. Um, and he spent uh, a critical period of his life in prison, which is one of the reasons why he wasn't assassinated, because he was in prison for, um, he spent two decades um, in prison. And so it's, it's important to note that, um, you know, that, that that kind of a leader, it, it, it's difficult to replace. He has a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, he has very senior connections with the other um, um, you know, with the important resistance axis um, regimes in Iran um, and, of course, with Nasrallah and Hezbollah in, in Lebanon after uh, Aruri was deported um, in the aughts. Um, 
So he was an important overseas commander uh, of the Kassam Brigades, and he's, you know, his institutional knowledge, as I said, it's very difficult to replace. But at the same time, we know that these assassinations don't uh, destroy the movement. They don't decapitate the movement. Um, and I think a lot of the reasons why uh, Israel is taking a pot shot and breaking the rules in the, um, you know, in the northern front and attacking deep inside of Lebanon um, in Beirut is at a meeting um, is because they can't reach any leadership in Gaza. They haven't been able to pull any kind of military success out of what's happening in Gaza, the massacres. And now we're seeing that Israel's um, starting to draw down its fight. And so they need to have um, some kind of symbols of victory. And they, they promised that they would um, you know, reach the leadership wherever they were. And so I think that's what they're attempting to do. They're hitting um, you know, essentially a soft target. They hit an apartment building uh, in the Dahia. Um, you know, they're not hitting military um, targets and they're not, um, you know, Aruri is an important uh, overseas element um, for Qassam, but he's not an on the ground commander in the fight in Gaza. Um, so it's a very separate um, kind of attack. Um, and I think yeah. that, uh, you know, in the history that shows that these assassinations, they don't work. They don't work on the micro level when during the second intifada, Israel killed um, assassinated 175 Palestinian activists and fighters, hunted them by name, um, and killed them. They killed all of the top Hamas and Qassam, um, many uh, leadership uh, at the time. Of course, they haven't been able to reach Mohammed Dayef, who's the uh, overall commander of the Qassam Brigades in Gaza and has been uh, for a long time, but many of the founding members of Hamas were assassinated, at, almost all of them. Yeah. Um, and so I think in that sense, it's it's something that prove that we, the history shows that it doesn't work. Um, but I wouldn't also want to uh, understate Aruri's importance. He's a, a a very central pillar, and yet his death is a loss to the movement for sure. Yeah. Well, of course, we'll have uh, much more on that as the situation develops. Um, John, take us through uh, some of the most recent uh, Jelly Bean vid videos, um, especially around the attack tunnels. Uh, what can you say about, uh, you know, the Israelis are talking a lot about tunnels. We've, we've got some videos um, set this up for us. Yeah, so a part of Israel's uh, attempt to exit the, the war in Gaza is to say that they destroyed the tunnel network. And so we've got a couple of videos here that um, show the use and um, the significance of the tunnel network that exists. This is a war in Barej. This is in central Gaza. This war in this central Gaza area is only about a week old um, in intensity. And you can see an uh, engineering uh, troop carrier there um, with the soldier outside of it. And in this video, we're seeing them use an attack tunnel to come out into open space. Um, and also, if we note this one, it's not a helmet cam. So they're sending the cameraman and the shooter out the same tunnel um, and getting within, you know, a couple hundred feet uh, of an Israeli armored vehicle. And we can see in this video also that the, um, the spotter um, is also the cameraman in that video. So that's... Um, uh, using a tunnel um, that the Israelis don't know are there to access 
um, that close to an Israeli position. And again, we talk about this all the time on these videos, but just the courage and commitment to, to stand in an open field like that, sort of like the number one rule of guerrilla warfare um, is, is, is not to be out in the open space, but to use concealment um, to attack. And, and these Palestinians are using a tunnel, which effectively operates as concealment, um, to access this area where the Israelis have just set up to start uh, operating. And so um, it gives you a clue at the type of tunnel network that exists. And maybe if we can go to the next one, um, Tamara, this is also in Barrage. This is, this is again, uh, very close distance to uh, Israeli armored vehicles. So the tunnels are able to be either dug really quickly like that or already exist in these places. Um, either way, that's significant. And now we've taken out, and, and one of the reasons we call them jelly beans was because we were worried about uh, about the uh, the sensors. Um, but in this video, so we've taken out the audio, but in this video, you can see also the shooter and the cameraman are separate, and they both go here. You can watch them go down into the tunnel together. They sent two people out the same attack tunnel, and then here at the end of this clip, you can see them climbing over each other to get back into the tunnel um, safely uh, to fight another day. Um, and so you can see that this attack tunnel um, network, it, it's not just a defensive network where they can, um, you know, protect their fighters um, and have logistics, um, but they're able to use the branches of uh, this tunnel network to access Israeli forces. And this is something that will happen increasingly if Israel is attempting to set up a buffer zone. What we're looking at right there is a shooter coming out the tunnel and firing into what Israel is calling the buffer zone. And part of its uh, apparent part of its attempt to wind down the war in, in Gaza um, is to establish themselves in this buffer zone. And right here, you're seeing them bulldozing trees um, in, a, in a forested, uh, you know, olive tree area, destroying the trees and then uh, bulldozing the land. And this video just shows you that the more they do that, the more accessible they are uh, by the fighters. And this is in Barrage. This is in central Gaza. Um, but we can see the use of tunnels also in Khan Yunus. Um, if we see this next clip in Khan Yunus, you can see how the tunnel is dug there. Um, so they're using, and look at the proximity. He goes, checks, see how close it is, uh, the armored vehicle right beside him. He gets passed by his assistant here, a Shawaz magnetic uh, uh, explosively uh, formed penetrator, which we talked about on last episode. And once again, also on last episode, we showed hand delivery, hand delivery to the spot on the turret of the tank um, that it's weakest. Um, something we've also seen Kassam give their fighters uh, that kind of um, that kind of um, information about where to hit. So again, you can see the tunnel. So the tunnel network exists under the ground. Once they spot the positioning of the Israelis, then they're digging that last little bit to make the attack tunnel. Um, and as, if the Israelis are setting up in the buffer zone, this is something that we're going to see more of. Um, again, just incredible courage and uh, and military acumen to carry out your mission. Um, that tank is operated. Somebody is inside that. And there's also tanks all around that. Um, and so we're seeing that attack tunnel 
be used um, as a hint of what the massive tunnel network that Israel is claiming, you know, with a lot of counting statistics, like Israel saying, like, we've destroyed, you know, we've kind of covered it on this show, like 500 tunnels, and then they said 800 tunnels. Now they're saying 1,500 tunnels. That well, they've John, John, one question I have. That, I mean, what, when I saw this, I mean, it's so incredible for so many reasons. But you can see that's a freshly dug tunnel. Yeah. And so I think, in a way, that this tells us that thinking about the tunnel network as some static thing that's been built, like a metro system, like, yes, occasionally every 50 years they might build a new line. But that's the wrong way to think about it. The tunnel network is dynamic. It's living. It's changing all the time. Is that a better way to think about it? Yeah, and it, and it was described by the Israelis that were down there as a spider web, right? So it's not just a, a street, a straightaway uh, that takes you from A to B. It's a spider web, and that spider web is both the reason why the Israelis won't be able to neutralize it, but also gives you a clue of the efficacy of using it for different means. So you can use it for logistics, you can use it for moving, but you can also use it as an attack. Uh, network, and it's the same tunnel network. It's not some separate network. Um, and so I think that this idea that the Israelis, um, part of their drawdown, you know, they've, uh, they're saying they rotated out 30,000 troops or so. They don't say numbers, but um, five brigades. They said that they're rotating them out and they're beginning to draw down forces um, and they're looking for an end game, which involves them being in the buffer zone with the supposition by Israel that if you're in the buffer zone, you're pushing Palestinian uh, rocket fire or, you know, October 7th military attacks um, back from the border. Um, but what we're seeing is that if that's the, the plan for the Israelis, that the guerrilla war element of this fight um, will take it to them in, uh, in these areas. Um, it's just the, the tunnel network, to say the Israelis to say 1,500, so even if they're lying about that number, the fact that they're using a number that, that's that enormous um, and you're still seeing that no, uh, you know, very few um, senior uh, Qassam leaders in Gaza are being hit, so they're clearly being able to use the tunnel to protect their forces. We have no idea how many of the, you know, 20... Uh, plus thousand people they've killed um, are Hamas fighters. But um, the, the number that it suggests from everything that we've seen is nowhere near what the Israelis are saying. And they're saying 8,000, and 8,000 of a 40,000 uh, member force, um, plus the 10 other groups that are involved um, in the armed struggle, plus any Palestinian in Gaza who becomes a guerrilla um, fighting this occupation. So we can see that militarily they're not um, anywhere near um, where they can say. They're, they're, um, the Israelis told The Economist, which has sort of been the, like, uh, the lead in, in getting Israeli intelligence information about this, that, they have, that the command and control structure of Qassam has been um, completely disabled, that the command and control structure doesn't exist at all uh, anymore uh, for Qassam, and that's how they were able to, and that's how yeah. they were able to fire those missiles at uh, Tel Aviv at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. And uh, another thing, uh, just echoing your comments about Salah al-Aruri, and uh, you know what, what what's the impact? And th this, I'm not changing the subject. I'm going to bring it back to this. 
But I, I want to say, you know, we can see the impact in terms of the strikes and demonstrations across the occupied West Bank, uh, that, that this is only increasing the support for Hamas. I mean, Israel thinks they're taking someone out, uh, not to diminish his importance and his contribution that he made to, to, uh, uh, within the organization, but it's increasing the appeal. But I think one effect of what Israel has done is that uh, they're just going to get an even bigger rocket named after him. The, yeah, the, I mean, the, the Al-Aruri 300, I, I don't know what they'll call it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's true. He's an important leader. There's no question about it. But there's there's no way that there, there's no if you look at the trajectory at, at the course, like I remember when I was reporting uh, in Gaza was the time that they were assassinating Sheikh Yassin and Abdulaziz Rantizi. And at the time, it seemed like, what is Israel doing? This is the craziest thing, um, you know, and, but the, if you look back on it, the group isn't impacted by that, and, and that's the leadership. But the actual fighting force, when they're saying that they've uh, disabled the command and control of the fighting force, um, their Kassam brigades are an organized military. They're an organized, as you've talked about before, order of battle um, of a conventional army alley. And so when they lose their fighters, they replace them in a logical, um, you know, a, a following on. Um, their leadership, it's easy, it's, it's obvious who they'll replace them with. And maybe it's not quite as clear with Aruri because of his relationships with Nasrallah and, and the Iranians, who they'll replace him with. But over the course of history, when they've killed these leaders, we can all in the public basically name who the next leader is going to be, right? It's not some ser it's a mystery within the movement that we have no idea um, the leadership in the movement is obvious and, and it's known. And so these kind of attacks, um, they don't have any significance on the functioning of the group over the long term. Again, um, he's a significant loss. Um, there's no question about it. But when we're talking about command and control and breaking down command and control, um, we're going to go into a set of videos here, one from Kassam and one from Sarai al Quds, that shows behind the scenes how these videos are made um, and so yeah, it gives that. you a, a, a sense so here they say after they pass we'll send you a signal we'll say they've gotten close you see him on the phone there he says after that you send the shooter you send the spotter then the shooter his helper and the cameraman and then we see these guys go out they're on a phone on a closed phone line they move through the buildings these guys are saying, look, there he is, there he is. They're seeing the Israelis in the position. You can see a way the cameraman's setting up the shot. He's in a separate spot. And he's saying, look at the upper floor. There they are. There they are. And the other fighter says to him, relax, relax. Let them collect so there's more of them there to carry out the attack. Again, this is a behind the scenes that we've never seen. This is the first time they've shown us this. You can see the helper there passing the thermobaric grenade, which is an anti uh, uh, personnel uh, anti-fortification. Um, it's built for this task, let's put it that way. Um, and you can see that there's multiple people involved. So there's four people in that unit, and he says, we got them. And that's the building after. Again, so he says, we're looking at the armored personnel carrier there. Um, he's saying, send the spotter. After that comes the shooter and his helper and the cameraman. He climbs out the window on the on a above ground window, 
climbs across the alley into a separate house where the shooters obviously are because um, we saw them on the phone. They're not in the same spot. They're coordinating these in multiple locations. So if whatever the opposite of command and control is, is what we're watching here. We're watching dudes on the phone, phoning each other and setting up an operation in Shujaia, um, again, where the Israelis were hit very hard in this war and in each previous uh, war. Um, and again, once so again just, the, the Israelis in that video showing their love of windows. Yeah, it still hasn't changed. They're in the windows all day, all week this week. It's not clear. Um, I, I don't know if some of these are reservists that just have no idea, and that's part of the thing they're rotating out. Um, it, it's not, uh, I mean, people say it in the comments uh, underneath. There's soldiers saying that this is like literally the first day of basic training. It's not, it's not a sophisticated military assessment to not stand in a window. But, I mean, is it, is it you, you know, John, we've all seen these videos, okay? Haven't they seen them? Uh, or are they in such a bubble of propaganda and indoctrination? that Do they know what's happening? I don't know if that's clear. I don't know if that's clear because we haven't seen that kind of lessons learned stuff. I don't know if they're just all into their TikTok videos. Like the, 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 the difference, the juxtaposition between the Palestinian resistance videos and the Israeli TikTok culture just couldn't be more, it couldn't be more stark. Um, it, it's not clear that the Israelis, I mean, a lot of this, let, let's say for the resistance, this is very disciplined. Um, they're blurring the buildings. They're blurring, uh, obviously, their fighters. Um, they're releasing the videos not necessarily the same day, so they're not giving the Israelis that information. In their field reports, they they write um, basically, Qassam um, details all of their attacks, but they generally detail them along an axis of fighting, um, not in a specific area necessarily, but in a wider area, um, basically corresponding to the battalions that are fighting in this area. Um, so this is the Shujaia Battalion carrying out this behind-the-scenes um, operation. And, and then we have another one from Sarai Al-Quds, which is just from yesterday. Again, go, moving through the rubble, which we'll show again, um, using a conventional uh, RPG-7 that uh, Sarai Al-Quds uses, moving through the neighborhood um, with knowledge of, of the neighborhood, passing the weaponry through these uh, mouse holes that are created that are part of the urban warfare landscape. Um, and Sarail Kuds, as I said last time, their videos um, take you a little bit longer uh, shot on this. Um, but so they, they've moved through the neighborhood without ever coming out on the street. And then he's creeping up here and watch when he turns the corner here. It's right there. And so they're, they're scoping the neighborhood with spotters and then they're moving through the rubble um, to get this shot um, and again so that's a behind the scenes uh, we saw the cameraman operating uh, in this video as well and so we can see both the military acumen but also the way that the um, information war um, is critical to these fighters showing these videos is very important part of the war um, in, a, in a war where it's difficult to get sort of on-the-ground um, journalism of the fighting because of the massacres that uh, Israel's carrying out. They, you can't do any kind of like on-the-ground following uh, of these fighters 
um, in the same way that maybe covering the Intifada, that we were on the ground with the, you know, the stone-throwing kids and um, with the fighters on the street. This is, uh, Israel has created a massacre scenario in Gaza where it's impossible for journalists to get this kind of stuff. And so part of the information war, and that's a Merkava tank getting hit from close up, too close to um, for this trophy uh, active protection system to kick in. Um, and so that's part of the thing. That's part of the fighting style is to move through these walls to get into a better position, not to simply say, oh, there's a tank and fire at it. Um, but you can see by these behind the scenes videos, and that's what this video is showing. It's a behind the scenes video by Sarai Al-Quds. Um, that are showing you the way that the cameraman, um, you know, the cameraman and the spotter and the shooter all function together. Um, and so that's one from Kassam and, and one from Sarai Al-Quds, um, really showing us, I think, for the first time, um, you know, 80 days into this, exactly how these videos are made. And sometimes the videos, um, you know, with the explosions, because of the, the explosions, the videos can look like chaos. Um, but these videos show that they're clearly not chaos. They're um, and they're part. They're not just staging some shoot here. They're they're integrating the information operations within the war fighting. Um, and so we have more of these uh, moving through the rubble um, because the 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 foundation for Israel's war has been to destroy Gaza. Um, as if you're going to um, make the resistance hand back the prisoners by destroying the landscape. Um, but what we see here in this next set of videos tomorrow, if we could show the Shujaia video, um, here's, here's Kassam using Shujaia. Um, again, they spot the tank, the shooters on the kitchen sink there. If we could see that when we come back to it, he's got his feet up on the kitchen sink, firing from an elevated firing position, um, which is more dangerous for the tanks. Again, moving through the rubble here to hit a second armored vehicle troop carrier there so tank troop carrier and then here comes a bulldozer so the trifecta of armored vehicles boom and then on this uh on the wall either on a chalkboard or the char of the wall Kassam has left a message here uh that says from this house we destroyed three armored vehicles uh during operation al-aqsa flood uh, sending a message to the people who come back to their destroyed home to show them that their home was used in the resistance, that their destruction of their home was part of the landscape of resistance, part of the war of liberation. And we've seen people leaving notes uh, in the other direction for the resistance. Uh, we've seen it in Gaza. Of course, we saw it in South Lebanon um, when people leave their house, leaving notes for um for the resistance. Here's the resistance leaving a note for somebody. And if you could just imagine uh, what the people who live in this house have been through for the last 85 days, driven from their homes, uh, put on a death march to the south, uh, no food, no water, no medicine, all the things that Electronic Intifada has done a great job of documenting through this whole war. Um, and they come back, nobody's allowed back into their houses. Israel shoot to kill, shoots to kill anyone that moves uh, through their cordon area to move back to their house to try to see it now 90 days on. And somebody's going to come back and get a message here written from the resistance that says that your struggle was not in vain, that this was part of the national liberation struggle 
Um, and I think that that's just that that was in the same video as the behind the scenes video. So we don't know anything about these videos. We haven't been able to talk to the fighters. Um, so we're just an, analyzing these videos uh, in real time and we have no idea they're coming. What, um, but, and what, so they dropped this video of Shujaia, and in the same video, we get a behind the scenes view of them talking on a closed telephone line and then giving a message to the Palestinian people who have suffered so greatly over the last 90 days um, that their suffers, the suffering is not in vain, that it's all part of the same struggle, which is what, um, you know, Salah Haruri's family um, said the same thing, that we're all in the same trench. You know, Abu Ubaidah said it in his uh, message the other day. We're all in the same trench. This is a people's war, and it's a war of liberation. And so that kind of messaging, um, I think it's just really important to show people that, that hadn't seen that. I think that is the, that's so true, uh, John. And I, I think also one thing you said about these videos appearing at first chaotic and I think they often are when you first watch them, but you watch them again and again, as, as I know you do, but I do as well. Uh, and you notice more and more in them. And they're definitely becoming more sophisticated in terms of, you know, the one you showed where they're showing the cameraman, the first one you showed where they showed the cameraman, the Qassam video, that is like a mini documentary that they've made to show you not just how they make the video, but how they organize the attack. And it's incredible because, this, I mean, that was a somewhat longer video, but none of them are more than a couple of minutes. They pack a lot of information in. And the other thing that's very clear to me is that the people who make the videos are watching and aware of the response to the videos. So they they understand that they, they are reacting to the audience. The videos um, indicate that to me. That message, it was certainly for whoever uh, owned that house or would return to it, but it also included a hashtag. So they're speaking to the world, they're speaking to social media, and uh, you know, you can just see that they are very aware of the um, the global reaction, particularly the reaction in the Arab world, because again, you know, uh, these videos have a huge audience because they're not just on Telegram and people do repost them on Twitter, but and other social media, but they are broadcast on Al Jazeera, on Al Arabi, on Al Mayadeen, on all the big channels that are watched by tens, if not hundreds of millions of people. And that also tells us another thing, uh, John, is that the, the Hamas fighters and the Sarai al-Quds fighters who are in the tunnels, who are underground, are not isolated. They see and hear what is going on in the world. And that is pretty incredible after now, you know, almost 90 days of bombardment worse than anything the world has seen since World War II. It's amazing. And this is one of the reasons why the Israel dropped the communications network, right? Because they don't want people showing videos like this. They don't want the resistance to have the capacity to share this kind of videos. There's still hundreds of thousands of people in the north, um, civilians that are still in the north. Um, and so the, the cutting the communications is in, in large measure, 
um, a, a method to stop this kind of information, to stop the kind of reporting that would happen that would show tanks uh, in flames um, and that. So, so the resistance has, has taken it upon itself to, to show us this kind of information. And yeah, you, you're exactly right, Ali. We, we could show that Shajaiya behind the scenes uh, clip. You could do an entire documentary on it because the, the amount of information that it shows in that video even just the, the closed phone line, that they feel confident talking on a phone line um, because Qassam has set up a, a closed uh, telecommunication system. And the Israelis have been trying to get at it for a decade. Um, and this closed network has what has kept people safe after you know decades of losing fighters. A lot of assassinations um, happen because of cell phones, of course. John, people were asking in the comments, what was the hashtag? And the hashtag was Tufan al-Aqsa, which is the name of the operation, uh, which al-Aqsa flood. So the, the, that's what the hashtag is. You can see on the right of the screen the hashtag, and then it says Tufan al-Aqsa. So they're also, they're, they're, they're not only is their command and control not broken, but they're clearly watching social media and TV. I mean, they gave a shout out in one of their videos to the Al Jazeera. Yeah. Uh, it's a yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're whatever the opposite of command and control being destroyed is what we're witnessing here. Um, but even just to say, even if their command and control was disabled, they would become a guerrilla army, which is what they were anyway. And so this idea that Israel is somehow degrading uh, the resistance um, through this battle or by saying because of some technicality that some brigade is somehow separated in communication, um, it's just clearly not the case. There, and there, not there's the another, I mean, another thing. I mean, we, we're focusing on the micro uh, details of these videos, which is fascinating and telling. But there's just one huge, very big picture point I want to make about this. The power of these videos, again, they are mostly unseen in the West because CNN isn't showing them, the New York Times isn't showing them, the BBC isn't showing them. But they are a major phenomenon in the Arab world and other parts of the world. They're very popular, not just because people like seeing Israeli tanks being blasted. I mean, who doesn't? I, I absolutely, no, nothing more satisfied, especially with the sound on when an Israeli tank uh, blows up, especially when you get that secondary explosion. Because it's, people it's, are watching the war crimes but, and they're angry. Right. But exactly. But the point I want to make, the bigger political point they make, is that this resistance is viable. That it is not, the, because the, the, the narrative that the Arab rulers, the Arab regimes, the, the, the media that's aligned with the United States and with the empire have been giving over the years is that resistance is pointless. You know, there's no point in resisting. You're just wasting lives. You're wasting effort. You should just try to get on with life. And what they're saying here is resistance is viable. And not only is resistance viable, but on the ground, when it comes to actually fighting, we are winning. And that is generating an enormous amount of support for the resistance across the Arab world and limiting the scope of action for the Arab regimes, particularly that are allied with the United States and Israel. So, for example, nobody anymore is talking about, you know, Egyptian or Jordanian or Moroccan or whatever it is, peacekeeping forces going into Gaza after 
the war. You know, those ideas that were floated around uh, a few few weeks or months ago, because people, they're all, they'll be looking at this and saying, well, we don't want those uh, Yassin 105s and Al-Ghul rifles aimed at us, because if the Israelis can't stop these people, we definitely can't. And the Israelis are making very bold claims, as we've said right from the start. Like Defense Minister Gallant yesterday said that if we don't win in Gaza, uh, we can't live in the Middle East. Um, you know, there are people that are uh, out of the Gaza envelope and living in uh, hotels uh, around Israel. They said they're never going back uh, if there's rocket fire. Um, the Israelis, uh, again, they told The Economist that they had um, they stopped rocket fire. So that New Year's Eve, uh, salvo on Tel Aviv that happened right at midnight, um, that was following on the Israelis saying that they had stopped the rocket fire, right? Like rocket fire that numbers somewhere around 15,000 rockets and mortars fired on Israel, which is like uh, three times, four times uh, the size of previous wars uh, and are still going on, are being fired from the north and from the south. Let's just go to the to the last one where we, we're talking about... Um, the way that the fighters can move through the rubble, because I think and a lot of reason why people, uh, one of the reasons why people want to see these videos is because they want to see um, that the massacres and the destruction um, that are happening in Gaza are being responded to. People are very upset by the massacres that they see on their televisions every day. And we're upset by our friends being killed um, and following this conflict uh, as closely as we have. Uh, as well. And so that's one of the reasons why people uh, are, are that way about it as well. The resistance is is, is optimistic and it's edifying to people. Um, and this information element of the fight has been a critical, uh, critical part. Um, the Tufa and Daraj. So the fighting um, has been happening again right through the wall. Um, and look at the proximity to hit that tank from above, which is not where tanks are built to uh, to withstand um, the pressure. So this is in Tufa and Daraj. This is in the old city uh, of Gaza. And so we've seen uh, videos today from Khan Yunus, again, hitting the back of a tank too close for its uh, active protection system and hitting it in a vulnerable spot, using the rubble that uh, that Israel believes that by smashing these people's homes, these are people's homes, um, that they that they'll, they'll drive the resistance out or they'll end the war and make it fine for them to live in the Middle East. But look at the proximity these fighters are using this rubble um, to get to these vehicles and hitting these vehicles from this distance. Um, and and you know the the ability for this to continue um, is created in part by Israel destroying um, the entire Gaza Strip for people to live in. Um, they've destroyed it for civilians. They haven't destroyed it for the fighters. The fighters are still able to move through their tunnels. They're still able to move through their mouse holes in the buildings. They're still able to call each other on the telephone. Um, and so really, it just underscores what we've been saying since the beginning, because it's been obvious that Israel's target in this war is the people of Gaza. It's the hospitals of Gaza. The only thing systematic that Israel has destroyed is housing and hospitals and bakeries. There's no systematic destruction of the resistance happening here. Even though they say things like, you know, uh, three of, 
uh, of the battalions uh, are combat ineffective or these kind of counting statistics um, that just don't um, they don't add up when you watch the videos and match it with uh, Israeli for even their covered up casualty reports um, are showing you know dozens and dozens a day 50 75 injured um, in a day there's a soldier outside of his tank believing that he I don't know what they believe. They believe that by bombing the civilians that they've made it safe for their soldiers. And it's just clearly um, not at all the case. And look at this one example here, tomorrow of the Sarail Quds using a destroyed house. Um, this is an operation that Sarail Quds showed uh, the other day. They're using a destroyed building here um, to, launch, uh, to launch rockets um, out, out of the building. So they're using the building as a rocket launcher um, to hit Israeli positions. Um, this is what we are saying, uh, John, that uh, they are using the uh, they are firing the rockets from the uh, uh, from the houses. But it's the reverse order, Dodi. It's the reverse order. They destroyed the houses, and so people are using it as a rocket launcher. Uh, because they've destroyed the houses, then the civilians have been put on a death march down to, uh, to you know, to Rafa to to live in the pouring rain in tents, um, and now their houses are being used to attack Israeli positions, um, and so this is this is perfectly fair in guerrilla war, Dodi. Oh, Dodi. Uh, but uh, John, are you are you? Uh, uh... I had a question, but this, I... this attack had casualties. This is a multi-pronged attack. We're not showing the whole video because it's a lot of rockets and mortars. Um, I just wanted to show you this one clip because it's an ingenious, not totally sure it's effective, but it's totally ingenious. And if it is effective, there was definitely casualties from this operation. It was um, uh, this... it was an attack on a, a fairly large Israeli military encampment. From multiple directions. From multiple directions. Are and we, with three photographers yeah. shooting it. So it was a yeah. detailed planned attack. And then they show in the video um, the medical evacuation of the soldiers that were hit. We're trying to maybe uh, sculpt these videos a little bit to try to avoid um, getting uh, any kind of uh, restrictions put on them. So uh, I just focused in on this one section where somebody's using a destroyed house as a rocket launcher. It's ingenious. Um, and it's something that happens the longer uh, the, the war goes on. Uh, what else do we do? We have it. Is that it? Do we have any yeah, more? A couple more. All right, we have let's a do more. it. So this is Sheikh Zayed. Yeah, so this is showing. So now we've shown Khan Yunus, Daraj, Old City of Gaza, and now this is in the north. This is still fighting in the north, and you can see using the rubble to access a house. Um, a destroyed house that Israel believes that because they destroyed this house, they're able to move their tank um, like almost spitting distance away and they're hit by using the rubble. Um, so the rubble in the building. Um, Welcome back. And that was Electronic uh, Intifada uh, doing an analysis of uh, various uh, media reports uh, from the mainstream Western imperialist media uh, to the media uh, advanced and circulated uh, by the resistance in Palestine. And that will conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, January the 4th, 
2024, and uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, uh, just go uh, to our website, and that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. And that is the website of the Pan-African Radio Network. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to uh, close out uh, with uh, the music uh, of legendary jazz guitarist Grant Green. Uh, this is from an album entitled The First Recordings from 1959. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.